Welcome to Press Club. I'm your host, Josh Constein. Tonight, we have a very special baby-themed Press Club for you, which is timely given my wife and I just shared the news of our first child, baby girl, Kennedy Sage Constein. And uh, babies, you know, they seem to do all right without too many gadgets for uh, all of history. But a new wave of startups is hoping to make them healthier and their parents happier, or at least a little bit better slept. You know, what are the best baby gadgets? Where are the opportunities for new startups? And do we actually need all of this stuff? Tonight, I'm joined by Robo Bassinet CEO, Dr. Harvey Karp, uh, Yumi Baby Food CMO, Evelyn Rusley, and Nanit Baby Monitor CEO, Sarah Dorset. Plus, my wife, Andy, and my baby, Kennedy. Uh, what is the state of baby tech right now, and why do we need all these gadgets? Let's kick that question over to you, Sarah. What is sort of the state of baby tech right now, and can maybe you give a quick intro to what you do with Nanit? Sure, I'd be happy to. So we sort of believe that Nanit is the, the, the smartest baby monitor on the market in terms of, of tech. And I think being in this technical world um, in general, just the world has has shifted into such a tech heavy world that the world of childcare and families, it's actually been, I think, a little bit harder to introduce a truly technical product like Nanit because it's still such an emotional state that you're in. You know, there's really, no one wants to, no one wants to disrupt that, but the rest of our lives have been driven and guided by tech. And they've been moving so fast because of tech. But in the baby world, that really hasn't happened. And in that world, the world of families and building families and and learning um, and hopefully making your life a little easier with tech has really been a bit behind, I think. And Nanit's goal in a lot of ways is to meet parents where they're most anxious and really help parents and families learn about their own baby and maybe use that information to guide them and have conversations with their broader family, their trusted advisors, their pediatricians, and ultimately just feel a lot better because they're getting information in a really safe way. And I think that is where tech can really be useful um, in helping families really enjoy that emotional journey. Um, without feeling like it's become a technical one. And so maybe you could tell us, like, you know, I think a lot of people still wonder, like, wh- what has changed? Like, why suddenly do we sort of need all of these products uh, if babies that were getting by seemingly okay for forever? You know, all of us who are in this room were raised without these kind of products, for instance. I guess the thing that, that really shocked me was the um, the idea that a lot of what is known about normal child development is not um, hasn't hasn't really been studied in a, in a in a major way because most people want to keep their babies close to them. You know, they don't want them to be studied. And in this environment where you have you know essentially just vision technology in a camera, you can just learn so much more about your baby. And I think that families feel so much more confident in this kind of information age where everything is available at your fingertips. We just feel better when we know more. And I, I think that that is true for parenting as well. So that's why I think the world is kind of headed in that direction and is kind of craving more information in all aspects, including the family one. Amazing. And Josh, can I take a stab at that as well? Yeah, jump in, Harvey. I think that what's changed, and it's a profound change, is really the disintegration of the extended family. For many years, it's been evident that the number one stressor on new parents is exhaustion. Parents are, are sleep deprived, they're stressed, they're doing the very tough job of raising a baby, except they're doing it with both hands tied behind their back. Because up until 100 years ago, and for the entire history of humanity, everyone had multiple caregivers helping them. So you had your grandma, your aunt, your older sister, your siblings, your cousins, your next door neighbor's older daughter. You weren't even holding the baby that much as much as all of these other folks were helping you. And so, and then of course you help them in return. And that's really what a family does. But these days we don't have that extended family. And even more than that, we don't think we deserve it. Parents think that a normal mom, a normal dad, is supposed to do it all on their own. And that, you, as a matter of fact, you should do it 24 hours a day. And if you complain about it, you're not really, you know, in love with your baby. And it turns out that this is an arduous path. It's not complicated mentally. It's not rocket science taking care of a baby. But the problem is that besides not having the extended family, losing the village, the other thing that we've lost 
is that we don't have experience raising babies. So many parents today, when they have a baby, and congratulations to you guys, by the way, in having yours, but for many, many people, it's the first time they've held a baby in their lives. It's the first time they've taken care of a baby, which has never happened in the history of humanity. It's evolutionarily bizarre and abnormal that you wouldn't have taken care of 20 babies before you have your own. And then the last point that's changed is that we grade ourselves on a different scale than parents used to grade themselves. Today, we grade ourselves on how well we did in school and how well we're doing at work and how much money we're making and what the prestige of our job is, et cetera. And so those are not skills and capabilities that really serve your purpose in raising a baby or a toddler. They're very different skill sets. And so we think we're competent. And then suddenly we realize, you know, it takes us down five pegs because we're not nearly as competent as we thought we were in taking care of these little butters. I also think what's interesting here, and that's a hundred percent true. The idea that like your village is very different than what it historically was, but also we're a generation that was raised essentially on Google. Like I remember being in high school and having Google and now increasingly, you know, kids are growing up with iPhones, like, you know, from like the cradle. And I think that has this effect of creating this generation of parents that, you know, we, my co-founder and I like to call like the era of conscious parenting in which it's a generation that was like raised to, you know, believe that you could Google every answer. You may not be asking your parent, your grandparents for how to raise your kid, but you're more so looking for the digital community. You're looking at Google, you're going down the Google rabbit hole. You're looking for things that are a kind of tech first or tech enabled approach. And so again, that's like the quantified baby. That's like apps like Nanit. That's like technology like Snoo. And I think that's what's also interesting is kind of this evolution of this generation of parents and how they're parenting fundamentally differently. And so you're going to have this new suite of apps and products that are more paired to that generation. I totally agree. Yeah, I think those are some fascinating points. The disintegration of the extended family, thinking that maybe we don't deserve to have all of this help and we're kind of augmenting that with gadgets and Googling instead of asking our direct community and then realizing that maybe we're not so good at this as everything else we think we're great at and getting kind of knocked down a peg and now looking for more data and more ways to be a conscious parent uh, and having more of that quantified baby aspect of being able to actually you know learn more than maybe what meets the eye or what you can tell, especially when you're out of the house. Uh, so Dr. Uh, Dr. Harvey, I'd love to ask you a little bit more. You know, you talked about how we kind of maybe need that extended family more than we really give ourselves credit for right now. And yet your product, uh, Snoo, you know, it's a robo bassinet. And if you guys haven't used this, it's amazing. We definitely use it with Kennedy. And what it does is you, you put the baby in it. And when the baby starts to wake themselves up, it actually rocks them back to sleep and uses you know, a white noise in these sort of wave patterns that help lull the baby back to sleep right as they're trying to wake themselves up. And so rather than wait till they get totally agitated and are going to be really tough to get back to sleep, they can actually sort of well themselves back to sleep thanks to this robo bassinet that moves on its own. But uh, how does that kind of jive with your theory of, of, of us maybe needing more of that extended family and the disintegration of that, uh, that aspect of communal ch- child rearing? Uh, and maybe you could tell us a little bit how you, you know, came up with this new and how it was invented in the first place. Yeah, sure. So, um, it, it jives perfectly with the idea of the disappearing extended family because Snoo is not a baby bed. Some people think of it as expensive baby bed. Actually, it's a very, very inexpensive caregiver. So, I mean, if you were to hire a 14-year-old to hold your baby one hour a day, you, you know, while you cooked dinner or did a Zoom call or whatever, you'd pay $15, $20 for that. For Snoo, you can rent it for about $4 a day and get 24-hour help. So whenever you're taking a shower, taking care of your toddler, um, or trying to get some sleep, the bed will hold and rock the baby and respond to the baby's upset so that you have an extra pair of hands. And that's really how parents experience the, um, the use of the bed. And so it really is, it's a caregiver. It's an extra pair of hands. We're even using them in the hospitals. We're in about 100 hospitals across the country using them as an assistant nurse because it gives the nurses an extra support as they're doing the other nursing services. And so I think it fits that very, very easily. Um, you know, with tech, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, so 
the way we started this is that I wrote a book about 20 years ago. I discovered something that people didn't really know, which is that babies are born with a calming reflex. Uh, the book is called Happiest Baby on the Block. And there's a video. Actually, I don't even recommend the book. The video is really the way to learn the approach. But be that as it may, the concept is something that's familiar to all of us, which is we all fall asleep in trains and planes and cars. We like the sound of the wind and the ocean. We fall asleep in hammocks. And, um, and so these rhythms actually imitate the womb experience. And when you do it in a very particular right way with babies, you're able to activate a reflex, which is almost an, an on switch for sleep and an off switch for crying. And that's um, was something that we I was teaching for for decades, and we've trained thousands of educators across the world teaching these techniques to parents. But then the question was, what do I do at night? I can't be doing these techniques all night long. And the baby, in essence, what we do with our babies is we put them in a very bizarre, sensory-deprived environment. They come from the womb where they have 24 hours of white noise, which is as loud as a vacuum cleaner. I mean, it's a kind of sound. They're constantly held. They're constantly rocked. Every time the mother breathes, she's pressing the diaphragm against the the top of her uterus and rocking her baby. And suddenly the baby is born. We put them on the back, which they've never been on the back, which is the safe position, but it's the worst position for a sleeping baby because they don't feel confident in that position. And then we take away the sound and the motion and the, and the swaddling. And then we go, why isn't the baby sleeping better? Well, you've just, you know, taken away everything the baby was used to in terms of sleep. And so uh, what we've been able to do with Snoo is give them those sensations. And then on top of that, we secure the baby on the back. So the baby cannot roll to an unsafe position because 3,500 babies, which is pretty much the number of Americans who died in 9-11, 3,500 babies year after year after year, every single year, die in bed with their parents or in their own uh, bassinets um, through some, either through suffocation or through some mysterious problems we call SIDS. And so one of the things we wanted to do when we introduced this bed was basically to end that problem, to save babies' lives. And so we're now uh, designated by the FDA as a breakthrough device meaning that we have the potential to be life-saving. And we hope later this year to get their permanent uh, or final approval as the world's first SIDS prevention bed. So that's all of the reasons why we felt this was a pressing issue and why we um, decided to, to you know, throw ourselves in the game. Amazing. That's such a cool story. I, I love that it, this sort of came from what the, you know, the research that you guys had, did and, and the, the book and videos that you had made, which was that, you know, this is, it, it's very strange to suddenly be out of the womb and be in silence in the dark instead of having, you know, all of the stimulation of the breathing and the blood rushing sounds and, you know, the constant rocking. And I've already found that like with our baby Kennedy, you know, if I walk around and sort of stomp around, like, sorry to my downstairs neighbors, but if I like stomp around, I think that's recreating the feeling of her being in the womb and being walked around when she was in Andy's belly and that and that's what the baby loves the most uh, also Andy if, if, if you're out there at any point feel free to chime in with uh, with you and Kennedy would love to hear your, your perspective on on how this new and these other products have have helped but I know that you're also uh, trying to keep uh, her, her at bay while I'm uh, while I'm recording this trying to keep her a little quiet at the moment but yeah we've we've really loved it I think uh, in the very beginning our biggest anxiety at least my biggest anxiety while we were still in the hospital was you know is she is SIDS a, a real issue is she going to pass away in her sleep and is she going to keep breathing and uh, coming home to the snoo and having the nanit set up has been really really helpful for for my anxiety uh, every single night and and daytime while we're napping being able to you know watch her and and hear her with the monitor has been uh, really, really helpful for me to get some, some sleep, even if it's only 30 minutes at a time these days. Uh, so yeah, we've, we've really been enjoying it. Uh, if you guys have questions in the audience or have comments or just want to like talk with other parents about what you're you're seeing or what products are working or aren't working for you, you can go to constein.club uh, slash chat or just go to constein.club. It's our website and you can join the chat room there and then you'll be able to join and find out you know what else, what other people are thinking and submit questions that we'll then be just asking our, our founders and, and panelists later today, uh, which would be really fun. We'd love to have your questions in here. So please uh, join. And if you want the link to that, it's uh, pinned to the top of my Twitter. So you can just go into my profile 
profile uh, and get to the chat room through that. Uh, but with that, Evelyn, I want to hear a little bit more about Yumi. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your theory about the origin of Yumi and, and the problem you're trying to solve there and what's really the state of baby food right now. Because it feels like kind of a terrifying thing where it's like, yeah, you know, you get a lot of education about maybe those first few months, nursing and sleep training and some of that stuff, even when you're in the hospital. But like, they don't really tell you anything about the six months later, you know, a year later when you're starting to feed your baby hard or solid foods and you just really don't know what you're doing and parents are trying to make this at home. And especially if they're busy, that can be so time consuming and tough. And you obviously want to be feeding your baby the most healthy stuff you can. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how you came up with Yumi and, and what the state is of baby food right now. Yeah. So uh, essentially, as you served it up, you know, Yumi is a baby and kids nutrition company. We now feed about 3% of all babies in the United States. Um, as I mentioned uh, prior to the official kickoff of the of this uh, of this session, um, I, I used to be a reporter. So I was last the innovation reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Before that, at the New York Times. Uh, that's where uh, you know I think I, I met you, Josh. Like was in that period of maybe it was during TechCrunch. Uh, so I've been covering tech and innovation, being very much on the other side of the table. And you know what really kind of pushed me over the edge to leaving a decade career in journalism and, and co-founding Yumi was all this incredible research. And as Harvey has also kind of explained the importance of sleep and how that's so critical for development, um, nutrition is one of the most important uh, factors that you as a parent can control. And so my co-founder, Angela, she's our CEO co-founder, when she had her first child, she was this you know, woman in finance working very long hours when she was pregnant with her first, uh, her daughter. And she started creating this Dropbox folder because, you know, she wanted to understand like how important nutrition was as she was gestating this human, what it would be like, you know, post-birth, all of that. And she just went down this long rabbit hole. I mean, we talk about, you know, how parents today are Googling everything. And, you know, for Angela, she's this uber nerd. Um, I've been friends with her for years that predate the company. Um, she was the math major. I was English major, but we were both like research nerds. I think me professionally, so as a journalist. And, you know, she was like, well, I want to find all the clinical studies, like not just, you know, reading about it in blogs, like really where are the primary sources? And so she started looking at every clinical study that was related to nutrition and development. And there was this uh, term called the thousand days. And it was about like 15 years ago, the Lancet, uh, which is like the NIH of the UK, very, very influential publication, had a series on the thousand days. They coined the term. And it's this period from in utero, so the moment of conception, to age two, that is actually more important than the rest of your life for nutrition. And so she started like accumulating all these articles related to like how important sufficient iron is for neural development. As we know, it kind of helps bring oxygen to the brain. It's just a very important part of neural development, but also everything from your metabolic health, your uh, taste preferences, like are all being shaped during, during this period in terms of everything from in utero to like what the mother is eating to like, you know, later on. And so something like formula is regulated like a drug because nutrition is so important but it's not like those needs like disappear at six months. And, you know, we always uh, talk about how you're only a couple of factoids away from becoming a super fan, because once you start connecting the dots between nutrition and development, it's really hard to see nutrition differently ever again. So one study that I read that was really fascinating and influential in this process was about the importance of iron and how there was a study that even if you resolved for a deficiency, so not even to the point of anemia, but let's say you realize during the thousand days that your child was deficient in iron. They showed that 14 years later, there was statistical significance that that child would be behind in terms of IQ, in terms of development, cognitive development versus their peers. And iron is the most common deficiency in the world, you know, even in the United States is a very common deficiency. I think about one out of five kids are iron deficient. And it just was so eye-opening. You know, I think I grew up as a child of immigrants and, you know, being in New Jersey, my dad was in the pharma industry. My sister's now a, a doctor, married to a doctor. And, you know, we grew up thinking that everything we bought at the grocery store, and, and one, we were just so like, 
amazed and grateful that we could afford things at the grocery store. So everything that was, you know, on the packaging, it's like low in fat, this is healthy. You just assumed that that's what healthy was. If it said it, it wasn't. And I think like not only was this research so profound, but you start kind of looking at the options at the grocery store and you start realizing that they are deficient, that a lot of them are full of applesauce, which is fine. You get some vitamin A and C, but then there's so much more that a child needs, not just iron, but like a whole panel of nutrition. And so not only, if you kind of think about it, like the way we looked at it and starting the company was like, your child's belly is this finite small tank. And so if you fill it up with only one thing, you're not going to be able to get in everything that your child needs. And so there should be a very science-based, thoughtful approach. And one also where you want to make sure that you're minimizing the exposure to like processed foods and sugars, because that also has an impact on metabolic health or things where like your taste preferences are largely set between the age of three and four. So it was this combination of all of this research and realizing, and I think this is something that we know, obviously, of the food system overall, that there was huge advancements that could be made that was fundamentally ripe for disruption. And so it became the thing that I was so obsessed about. I mean, so my family is from Indonesia. And, you know, it, I think it's kind of this become this became sort of this micro story for me in understanding kind of like the evolution of our society and nutrition. So, you know, my my father's side, as their side got, you know, wealthier over time, you know, they actually had higher rates of obesity and things like type one diabetes because they as they got, you know, more into the economy and like being able to afford the options at their grocery stores they were making worse choices. And so there was also in this study that showed that, you know, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the number one killer in the world was like malnutrition, like the absolute lack of nutrition, like not getting enough calories. And then they fast forwarded and did the study again five years ago and realized that everything had been flipped and now it's like metabolic health issues. So almost from like, there's, there was many different angles in which you just realize like it all starts during this period and it's so critical. And the options that were, you know, dominating the grocery shelves were just not sufficient for the enormous needs of a child during this period. So that that's why it became the story I couldn't stop thinking about. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it is pretty incredible when you start to think about how much processed sugar people eat, you know, how kids often get fed, you know, gummy bears and apple juice and applesauce. And just like, you know, I grew up eating Honey Nut Cheerios, which like definitely to me seemed it was like heart healthy was written all over the box. And I didn't learn until later that it's like one of the sh most sugary cereals and something I really probably shouldn't have been eating like every day for a decade. But nobody really knew that back then. And yeah, I definitely agree. What we I think we've seen across the world is often, you know, when cultures start to grow more affluent uh, and a middle class arises, oftentimes food is used as a reward for kids, which can lead to childhood obesity. And, you know, just across the board, like when you feel suddenly like these things that used to be treats you can afford all the time, it can really lead to some negative health choices. And it's something I think we ever all have to grip uh, tackle with. Yeah. And, and so like the core of actually what we offer at Yumi is not just, you know, a, a product on the shelf. We deliver direct to our families. And a big part of that is also providing context, right? So I guess in my, my background being in journalism and the importance of helping parents connect the dots, like what you're solving for is bigger than mealtime, right? You're actually giving parents these personalized options at scale that kind of match to their kids' development. So like at six months, we're highlighting meals that are high in iron because your child's like uh, iron stores are naturally depleted fully by six months. So like at the birth of your child, kind of where you guys are now, they have a certain amount of iron, but like by six months, that's fully depleted. So popular time when people are transitioning to solids. And so you should be getting access to foods if you're, you know, starting to use solids that are higher in iron because it's so important for neural development. And so it's that combination of, you know, because of the way tech has evolved our consumer tech economy, that we can provide product and context and also create an experience that's more relevant and personalized at scale. 
I think it all somewhat comes back to this concept of anxiety, of just like always wanting to do what's best for your child. Because when you make your decisions for yourself, you're like, you know what, I'm going to live with the consequences. But when it's somebody else, when somebody who can't make the choices for themselves, it's a totally different feeling. Like you, you feel so much duty and responsibility to make the best choices because they're not the ones getting to, they're the ones who have to deal with the consequences. And, you know, I can't think of a product that makes it easier to deal with some of that anxiety, especially when you're away from your baby than Nanit, which is this incredible baby monitor. You know, it's a night vision camera that hangs over your baby's bed and can, you know, detect all sorts of things like movement and sound. And so, it, you know, you get notifications on your app uh, if something's happening in the crib. And I think that that's incredibly helpful for just always feeling like even if you're not staring at the monitor that you know that you're like, you're always informed about it. So, Sarah, maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, why you saw a problem here and why you, why we needed this and, you know, your philosophy about, you know, managing, you know, both a, a sense of wanting to constantly know what's going on with your baby without also like becoming obsessed with constantly watching them and still being able to live your life. So, yeah. Um, and that's exactly everything you said about anxiety is exactly um, why Nanit is, is what it is today. So I'm a mom of three. And um, by the way, I use the Harvey Carp method, <laughs> happiest baby on the block. Um, and it works like a dream. Um, Thanks, for my Sarah. First child. So absolutely love, um, huge fan. Um, but I will say that, you know, when I, a lot of how we talk about Nanit and what, how we think about Nanit today and what we're, what we, you know, the, the path, it, the future of Nanit is really driven by the idea that there is so much anxiety around parenting. You know, you don't have, um, there is no guide. You get pregnant and you have about nine months to learn what to do. And then the baby comes and it's all that goes out the window and you just have to act in the moment. And I always, always had challenges with this idea of monitoring and how scary it was to put your baby in the crib and then walk out of the room. And what I realized is, you know, I was sort of obsessed with my baby monitors and, you know, and, and knowing what was going on and, and checking them. And was I hearing the right sound? And was the temperature right in the room? And, oh my gosh, this is just, this is making me so anxious. It's making me more anxious than I need to be. And what Nanit is really designed to do is to take that anxiety away. What we want you to feel, we want you to know that the crib is actually a pretty magical place. There are very important things that you should think about when it comes to safety in the crib. And, but those things are pretty easy to accomplish. And after that, your baby is actually in a really, is in a really safe environment and it is where they're actually working things out. It's where they're learning to grow and they're kind of doing it without any human intervention. This is their private place to learn and develop and some pretty incredible stuff happens there. And we just wanted to make sure that, um, you know, we could use this amazing vision technology to give those moments back to parents and help them understand that we, we sort of got this. We'll, we'll let you know if something goes wrong, but Nana's taking care of baby while, um, while he or she is in the crib. But the technology itself lets you do so much more than that. It lets us capture incredible moments. It helps us predict things, you know, so that, you know, we can, we can tell you before something happens so we can be much more proactive than, than reactive. Um, we can capture memories that you would never be able to capture if you were, um, if you were just using kind of a traditional baby monitor, because it's always that, you know, oh my gosh, I just missed that moment. You know, they just rolled over for the first time. They just called out to um, you know, mama or dada for the first time. Um, and I think that we just, um, we really try to create this idea that with Nanit, everything is going to be okay. You can relax. You have kind of complete control over the experience itself. There are so many different settings. You can invite a whole parenting team into the experience as well, but you always remain as a parent in the driver's seat. And the more information and the more you learn about your baby through the Nanit experience, the more confident you're going to feel about sort of um, driving your way through those, those, um, those early years of parenting. Okay, so he, there's this one opportunity that I was really hoping to make happen on this show. And that is that both the Nanit and the Snoo have their own sort of swaddle systems that can, you know, to latch around the baby to, you know, keep them, you know, nice and like tucked up like a little burrito. And that really makes them happier and seem to sleep better. Uh, but, you know, this, you know Nanit ha offers, you know, breathing, uh, you know, breathing detection through that band. But if I'm already using the Snoo one, I can't really use them both. So how can we get Harvey and Sarah, how can we get 
get you guys to collaborate so that you guys can share data or integrate together so that I can you know pass data from one to the other and use them both in conjunction. Can we make this happen right now? I love this is like a biz dev meeting. This is great. I was going to say, where do I post my, you know, where do I DM my phone number? No. <laughs> but Sarah, doesn't the Nanit work with Snoop? I think a lot of people do use them together. Yes, mm-hmm. there's there are some um, from a breathing motion perspective. So our breathing motion monitoring is really, again, it's sort of meant not to create that anxiety. We know, and I know as a mom that, you know, there was always that idea of checking in on your baby also included putting your hand on their chest, just, just making sure that everything was okay. They were, they were, they were breathing and sleeping peacefully. And, but the idea behind our breathing wear products, which are simply baby sleepwear products that the camera uses to detect the movement of the chest. So that, so there's no electronic devices, there's nothing on it. The movement of the chest itself um, is, is not meant to create anxiety. Um, I always say, you know, if you need that kind of constant monitoring, go ahead and use it that way. No problem. If you just need a check-in, the app sort of lets you do that. It lets you say, okay, just lock in on the pattern, take a minute, put your hand on their chest virtually, and then, you know, make sure everything's okay. And then also for those moments, like the first time the baby's sick, when they start to roll over, great to have a little extra peace of mind. Um, Toss your baby in in some pajamas that have a a pattern on the chest and let the camera do the work for you. But today we do, we do know a lot of parents do use Nanit and Snoo together. You know, I think what what this brings up for me, you know, is I'm not a technologist, I'm a pediatrician. And, and, um, and what was interesting about that when we started our company from our point of view was, there are really two things that technology does for us. One is to measure and the other is to solve problems. And, um, and they're both can be beneficial. A lot of people just love to measure and love to follow the data. And um, for other people, the data is not so much important. It's really just knowing that you're getting the effect that you want. And just my own personal interest was not so much in the data, um, but I wanted to really solve problems. So how do we how do we do things to improve an infant's sleep? I mean, what's interesting with SNU, we've studied now over 42,000 babies um, and demonstrated that we add an hour or two to the baby's sleep at night because we're giving them these rhythms, kind of like driving you in, in the backseat of a car all night, you know, that you'll, you'll uh, end up getting a little bit more baby, a child at least will get more sleep. Um, how, do we, um, how do we help in the problem of infant sleep death? Because we know... 50% of babies who die, die because they roll onto their stomach, and another 50% when they're brought into bed with their parent. And so by preventing rolling and by improving sleep so that we reduce parents accidentally or intentionally bring the baby in bed with them, we're able to, um, to reduce the, the chances or the risk of the baby having a problem. So I just, I think that um, from my point of view, uh, personally, I'm not so much interested in the measuring of things as I am in the, prevent, in, in the functionality of it. It's the way I look at it. So I want to bring up another question, which was, you know, we discussed this a little bit earlier, which was the extended family and the idea of like a tribe raising a child. You know, they say it takes a village, but we've kind of walled ourselves off from our village. You know, I, we, we least used to live so much more communally and now, you know, everyone has their own apartments, their own homes, especially in America. It's not super traditional to live with, uh, you know, intergenerational uh, families. And that kind of divorces you from having all of this extra help. And I think that that's really tough. You know, how, how, what have you guys seen in terms of strategies, especially around people who maybe don't have parents around or can't afford to have like full-time help? You know, what have you seen, you know, families or groups of friends specifically doing to be able to bring back some of that communal nature? I know me and Andy like always dream of like one day, instead of having to send our kids to private school, because public school in San Francisco is pretty tough, uh, to like have a, a school club or like pods where, you know, our kids can go to different houses of their friends and all learn together because all of our friends seem to all have babies at the same time right now. I think we're experiencing a bit of a, a COVID baby boom. Uh, and so I, I think it's really fascinating to see, are there new ways that, you know, parents and groups of friends can work together to make kids feel that way? Because, you know, I always feel like my friend's pets who get passed around between lots of pair like friends and like spend a lot of time being socialized. Those are the ones that like are really nice pets later on in life. And I kind of hope the same thing is true for kids. And so I want my kid to be around lots of other people, but that's certainly not the way our society mostly works out right now. So have you seen strategies, maybe Dr. Karp, uh, that, that like let people uh, and, you know, raise babies more as a tribe? It's really become such an important question. Um, Evelyn was talking about the importance of nutrition and 
and caloric intake and nutritional intake and organic food, which you didn't mention, but I think it's so important about, about you know, um, feeding children and growing food that way. But it turns out that social nutrition is is just as important. And we live, we in the United States live in kind of a social desert. Um, if you think about it, this is wonderful work done by a psychologist named Bruce Perry um, out of Texas. And basically what he said is that, you know, the, use, the family used to have three kids, two parents, grandparents, a dog. Your neighbors were over all the time. You had 10, 15 people. And think of all the, 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 the relationships that you can have among those 15. There's just, you know, hundreds of possible group relationships. But if it's two parents and a child, there are only, you know, three potential relationships. And so ultimately, you have to, as a parent, look for ways to enrich the social environment. And that can be through FaceTime and through, you know, communicating with grandparents on the telephone or through Zoom calls, um, through pods, like you were saying, through preschool. You know, a lot of people or childcare, a lot of people look down on parents for putting their child in childcare, whereas that actually may be the most wonderful thing you can do for your child to give them that enriched social environment um, which is much more interesting than just being home with a, a one of the parents or with a nanny or, or, you know, a limited social exposure. So it definitely is worth putting some thought and attention to that because children need that social exposure as much as they need the, 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 the air they breathe and the food we feed them. Yeah, I just always like to me, I really want my baby to spend as much time as possible around people who like truly care that she turns out great, that she's going to be a happy you know, kid and have a wonderful life, not just that they're sort of getting their job done in the meantime. And certainly there are like plenty of incredible nannies, incredible night nurses and people who are truly super loving to the kid and do a great job with their with their work. But, you know, in the end, they don't really have a vested interest in whether that kid does well long term the way that I feel like a friend group or a family really does. And so, yeah, Sarah and Evelyn, I would love to hear if you guys have heard any tactics or, you know, how friends and groups of friends in, in cities specifically can help, you know, collaborate to have that more child, you know, communal child raising experience. Yeah, I, I think to Harvey's point, you know, social nutrition is so critical and we are inherently social communal creatures. And so what a village is just goes through different permutations. And, and so when we look at what does it mean today, it is a little bit more fragmented, but there are aspects that I think in our modern age, we try to recreate um, in terms of becoming a village. So that means, you know, whether it's Facebook pods or the way that people communicate uh, via Instagram and you find your tribe on Instagram and, and those become the influencers in your life and like helping you guide through decision-making through parenthood. But I think you just find sort of these like, like a combination of, digital communities that, you know, are, are a bit more like vast and spread out, but then also very local digital communities and still like local pods. And so I think you even saw in the time of pandemic, I mean, um, even though I, I don't actually have kids, a lot of my friends, a lot of people I interact with obviously do. And I think it was really interesting that, you know, despite all the adversity and the crazy period that parents had to go to and such extreme moments of isolation, that you know, there was also this, I think, interesting emergence of like pods across cities where people would find like play groups and they were small and they were more finite. And it wasn't quite, you know, a, a full blown maybe like daycare, but people found a way to find a sense of community or, or give their kids a sense of some kind of like social network by like bubbling together. But I think it, it is interesting just like how we find at least like some kind of local or digital corollaries today to make it more social. And so like, I think there's, you've probably also gotten a million lists from like influential moms and dads that are, are local to you guys. I feel like that's probably the number one, uh, I think a generator of like customer acquisition for us is just the, the, the natural list and how parents just can't help but be inherently like social. And so, um, so much of our growth has been, you know, more kind of grassroots viral. And so no matter how we still get increasingly digital and remote, 
there is, you still can't, uh, I guess, run away from the fact that parenting in many ways is still an inherently local and inherently tribal. One other, just Josh, one other thing that is a great way that parents can really supplement their child's social exposure is by getting a couple of dogs. You know, they interact, you interact with them. They're really kind of members of the family and you learn so much with raising a dog, training a dog, the responsibilities of taking care of a dog. It really enriches a young child's life. We are very excited to get a dog once you know, we have sort of gotten out of the, the toughest, you know, toddler period of, of having babies, though I certainly feel like I've seen a lot of people, you know, in you know, their late 20s, early 30s, get dogs or get, you know, pets when they kind of want a baby but they just get a pet in the meantime because it's kind of like something you can do solo. You don't need to have a partner or anything else for it. But then it often ends up like consuming so much of their life that it often pushes back dating or whatever helps helps them find the partner, which will then make them feel comfortable actually having the real baby. And I feel like sometimes the like the Band-Aid ends up replacing the thing you really want. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited for that we managed to like stave off having a little fur baby until we had a skin dog, which I guess nobody says I'm allowed to say because that's just like a terrible, <laughs> terrible term. Um, you'll be you'll be in the doghouse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so there are a lot of products out there that parents are told they have to buy. I want to hear maybe a quick lightning round. What is something that parents don't need? What's something that you think is really feels like it's kind of a scam, or it really just isn't that essential that people maybe that parents are frequently told they need. What I've heard is that, you know, buying an excess amount of like clothes. <laughs> so, you know, they grow out of them so fast. Obviously, you need some some basics, but uh, you'll probably also have friends who'll give you some hand-me-downs, uh, like the, just from the last cohort that we went through parenthood or with their first kid. And so probably not overspending and like not purchasing all the crazy designer. I mean, you can obviously splurge when you feel like it's worth it. But I would say like, that's probably one of the things that parents are like, oh, I just, I wish I didn't spend all of that. Like, it's super cute. It's great for the gram, but it's also, they, they grow out of things just so quickly. We definitely find ourselves just like recycling the few things that Kennedy loves wearing and that like fit right and are easy, really into the magnetic me uh, clothes that are super easy to, to fasten on. But like we don't need all the other ones, like anything that's tough to get on, anything that seems like it's more for the photo than it is for the baby. Like we find we're just never putting on her. And it's probably is, is a bit of a waste if, we, if people want to give us those as gifts. The other thing I constantly saw was like, Parents will get all of these gifts when they're, you know, when they're pregnant to have, you know, it's all like newborn clothes or like zero to three months. And like nobody gives them anything for like 12 months to 24 months. And suddenly you're like, okay, now I guess I have to buy all that stuff myself because nobody decided to give us anything then. Being an author, I probably shouldn't say this, but we, people buy so many baby books and then they, most of the time they don't read any of them. And if they do read them, they don't remember them. And so not that, I mean, not that you shouldn't buy them because you feel good as a parent. At least I bought the books. But I will tell you this, what I'm struck by is that very few parents buy a book about toddler behavior. And it turns out between birth and one year of age or eight months of age even, you know, it can be a rocky time. It's, it's certainly uh, effortful, but you'll get through it one way or another. But between eight months and five, six years of age, you've raised a person. And people so much focus on those early months, which are, you know, important months. But I wish that people would would spend five hours less watching Game of Thrones and five hours more buying a good book about toddlers and learning toddler communication and toddler development so they could really more appreciate and also bring up their skills for taking care of, of kids that age. Andy, when you have a second, I uh, would love to hear if there's anything that you think that we bought that we really haven't needed. Oh my goodness, there's so many things. I just want to piggyback on that, what Dr. Karp said. I, I actually spent probably way too much time, Josh can attest to this, I, I probably read 15, 20 books on pregnancy and uh, spent hours and hours learning about labor and delivery, read books. We took online classes that people recommended. Um, and then we actually got to the hospital and the labor just kind of happened to us. It wasn't really something that we could have done too much preparation for. Uh, so it is really helpful to uh, to hear that, that advice uh, that we should really be focusing on the, the toddler years. I'm really excited to learn more about them. You're going to have a toddler, like, but like whether you're going to end up using the like bounce 
pouncing on the ball and the like all fours and the laboring in the shower techniques, like memorizing all those, like you may not use any of them. But you know what's so, what's so crazy about it is the time goes so quickly, right, Sarah? I mean, you've had three. It just, it goes in a blink and those first seven months are gone and then you're not, and then the baby stuff is like you talking to a friend from elementary school. You're so not interested in the first three months because now you're looking forward at this toddler period, which is so much more challenging in different ways. Sarah, what do you think? Anything that you think that people maybe overbuy or don't really end up needing? I'm going to bounce back a second and say that, you know, as a, when you talked a little bit about community, I have kind of an unfair advantage, I think, at Nanit because we are a digital platform and our focus right now is all about connecting and, and community. And so I, I, I echo what everyone else talked about there, um, but we can really create a pretty unique community because we are um, a digital platform. So the importance of it is, has, is not lost at Nanit in, in any way. And we're really excited to launch it. But I'd say that what's hard about the question about, you know, what we what we used and what we didn't use is that sometimes I'll say, oh, you don't need that. And then I'll find out that, you know, someone it was really useful for someone. But I would actually say that I cannot tell you how many blankets I received. For some reason, everybody wanted to give me a blanket for my baby. I must have had 30 of them. And um, it was sort of shocking. And I remember people actually telling me you don't need all those, return those, you know, you will not need those blankets. And I thought, no, no, there's a reason. There's a reason why everybody's giving me a blanket. I, I need to, I need, I need to think about this. I need all these blankets. And I really only needed, you know, maybe three. Um, so uh, I would say, you know, don't, um, I guess the, what I really, the, the point is really that you don't need a lot of everything. Um, you know, you don't need a lot of each item, you really only need a little bit of each one. Um, and, and that's, that would be my overall advice on, on baby supplies. I would totally agree, except for when it comes to wet wipes, you could buy me a pallet of wet wipes and we would be, <laughs> we would be happy about it. It is just astounding <laughs> how fast you go through those things. Um, okay. I want to ask a little bit about what's left in the startup, you know, the baby startup, baby tech space. You know, where do you think there's still room for like whole new products or startups to exist? Are there any major problems that parents constantly ask you about and you really don't have a great recommendation and maybe an entrepreneur in the audience could go on to build? The uh, automatic potty trainer. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there are, you know, just certain periods in life that are, that are so challenging. I, what I love is that I'm constantly amazed by the ingenuity of parents and, and so many parents then become startup developers and founders. But, you know, there are lots and lots now of products that are out there to help parents learn how to play with their growing kids, to think about interaction, to think about creativity. And all of that becomes fertile ground for, I think, product development. Yeah, actually, I, I was thinking about toddler development to Harvey's point before about how there's a lot of emphasis in the, the first year and then kind of like starts to slide away. But I, I think, um, you know, to the point around how to interact with your kids, how to think about applying technology around development, there's still so much innovation left around, you know, as they start to transition to screen time, like, what does screen time become that it doesn't become a tool that is wrapped in guilt where you're not like, oh, I just feel like I need a second. I'm going to give my kid the iPad and I'm going to feel bad about it though. And I was talking to a new star startup, Hellosaurus, and they're trying to create moments of interactive play and like, you know, immersing the child, becoming like very much a, a pick your own adventure, a very interactive platform. I think that like innovations around that, around like thinking through all this development that happens, the executive functioning skills, the, you know, you're, you're starting to acquire skills around grit and all these things. It's not just like sensory and numbers and all of that. I, I think there, there is something interesting that happens as your child forms their personality and, and who they are as like, and, and they start to hit that moment where they're starting to accelerate with becoming screen time, which could be a force of negative or a force for good, depending on how the technology is applied. So I think there, there's going to be a lot of interesting innovation in that world. Because I know that's a place that a lot of my parent friends have guilt around as their kids become like three or four. And, you know, it becomes this, this thing that they just feel, you know, so, so bad about, but it doesn't have to be that, you know, I think if, 
if there are better you know, platforms that create really thoughtful, interactive content. Yeah, I totally agree. I found this when I was researching Facebook and its effect on well-being. I read a ton of the studies. And what we found was that thinking about screen time or social networks as this like monolithic concept is really uh, to the detriment of getting to the bottom of what is good and what is bad for you. And what we've really found from the research was that interactive, active uh, experiences like messaging, commenting, creating, those actually mostly make people feel good. Like the studies showed that those didn't end up causing the envy spiraling or the isolation and alienation uh, that we think of as being the like hallmarks of negativity from, uh, from social networks or screen time. But it was that passive zombie scrolling, that like endless whipping through the feed, you know, endlessly like clicking through somebody's photos, uh, the things that really felt like it was just a solo experience, those did tend to make people feel like they were comparing themselves against everybody else's life or that they were really like removed and they were doing that instead of having a real interaction and that maybe just like a quick chat with a friend, even over text, uh, would be a lot more fulfilling than looking through endless feeds. And I know that can be tough because when you, when you're kind of low on energy, low on enthusiasm or spirit, I know that those are the days that I spend the most time scrolling because it feels the easiest. I have to put the least energy in. But if you're willing to even just put a little bit of energy in or you're willing to create something where your kid is willing to put even just a little bit of energy in, they're going to get so much more out. Personally, I'm like dying to teach Kennedy uh, video editing. I want her to learn to like shoot and edit video when she's really little. I have this vision. Of, days, Josh, calm down. I, I, have this, uh, I have this vision of her being like a little investigative journalist and being like three feet tall with a camera asking like important leaders like really tough questions and totally catching them off guard and like editing her own videos uh, and just like creating something that like doesn't exist in the current investigative journalism space that's just me but I think like when people think about their their kids and screen time don't think of it as one big thing that's all bad or all good think of it as like FaceTiming with their friends creating new content uh, you know collaboratively with their parents or messaging with friends uh, that those things can be really powerful and, and valuable. Whereas it's that like endless watching of, of, uh, you know, YouTube videos, you know, giving your, up your kids taste to the algorithm. That's where I think things start to, to cause more trouble. Actually at Nanit, we did, a, you know, we have, we're able to, you know, really survey our parents and we did, a, we did a screen time study and we found that, um, the impact on babies under two who had various, levels of screen time during the day, there, there really was an impact on sleep. And the impact was those who had a lot of screen time during the day, they didn't nap well, but they actually slept better at night, which was really interesting. It was such an interesting thing to, to correlate how their sleep patterns changed with screen time um, added into, into the mix and into their daily routine. Having been a pediatrician for so long in Academy Pediatrics has a strong position on screen time. I just would want to say to parents out there, there's a saying, don't should on yourself. And it is so hard when you are the caretaker and the cook and the cleaner and you're doing everything and you don't have extended family or helpers. And you got to use tele, <laughs> to use, you know, screens sometime as a babysitter. And I'm not saying that you should, you know, you should be moderate in that and you should be trying to find other ways of entertaining kids and interacting with them when you are doing that to the degree that you can. But I do think that parents, there's so much guilt out there. It's really important to recognize the fact that you're just trying to get through and you're, you know, sometimes you need to use these electronic babysitters to give yourself some, some extra spare time so you can do the other things that you have to do as a parent. Yeah. I, I also like to say in, in relation to Josh's point around like how you can find a way to make these a force for good. There is a really fascinating neuroscientist, Adam Ghazali. I don't know um, how many people are familiar with his work here. He's based in San Francisco. He has a lab called the Killy, and they actually have the first FDA approved therapy for ADHD that is a digital therapy. It's a video game and it's fascinating. So he had the cover of Nature uh, several years ago. I mean, probably like six years ago, and it was rooted in this idea that if you put pressure in the prefrontal cortex with like virtual games, like in a very specific way, it actually had a positive effect across the prefrontal cortex. And so um, that obviously has implications like beyond ADHD. But it was like this really great testament 
And like when done right, or when done in a very um, thoughtful, intentional way, like technology can be used for good. And so that's why I think like this is probably just the early inning scratching the very tip of the iceberg of like how we can leverage technology and screen time in the future for like to like help with development. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's like certain, certainly like when your kid is one, you're not doing that. But like as they get older and into like the toddler plus years, if they're going to have screen time, uh, I think increasingly we're going to see interesting modes of interaction and entertainment that are more productive than they are harmful. At least I like to think so. I totally agree. So one thing that I hope that some startup addresses is that, you know, we've seen a bunch of innovation around uh, breastfeeding. You know, you have the breast friend, which is this adorable little like shelf that you can Velcro to yourself to like rest the baby on. So you're not like hunched over them while you're feeding nipple shields, which can help with, you know, with soreness, uh, like automatic pumps and portable pumps that you can like put into your bra or shirt. Uh, so you can pump on the go. There's been a lot of innovation on that side of it, but the burping part, that is what we have found to be a serious challenge and something that I would love to see some startup try to address maybe to figure out, you know, is this, is it upper chest gas or is it like lower, you know, abdomen, like intestinal uh, uh, gas, you know, where, you know, how do I know when I've burped them enough? Am I burping them too hard? I'm constantly worried about like micro concussions. If I were burping them too hard, would love to see somebody uh, build some innovation around that side of things. Um, so I'm going to run through a few of the amazing insights that our panelists gave us today before I uh, asked for a, a final piece of insight from from our guest today. So you know, we started talking about uh, the dis disintegration of the extended family and how often you know parents don't even think that they deserve it, uh, that they don't necessarily deserve help when they really do. We've been tribal animals forever. You know, we're used to growing in, up in communities with parents having a lot of help from their peers with child raising and kids being surrounded by other kids. And suddenly, you know, we're much more isolated, especially after this year with COVID. And I think that you know more families need to realize that like they do deserve that help and they can find it in their community and more groups of friends should be banding together or groups of neighbors. Maybe that's a better use for next door than most of what goes on on that platform is helping people find nearby kids who are the same age so that you can have that, you know, peer support with child raising and that, you know, it can be suddenly a, a way to get knocked down a peg when you realize maybe you're not as good at this at parenting as you think you are at everybody else. But luckily we're, you know, reaching this phase that, well, where we're growing to be more conscientious parents, more conscious, more, more quantified, where we do at least have, you know, things like Google and new gadgets and things that can help aid us in you know the absence of those other uh, of those other help you know snoo is a great example this robo bassinet you know you might think of it as an expensive baby bed but if you think of it as cheap childcare suddenly you know renting it for four dollars a day doesn't seem that seem that expensive and it's now in a hundred hospitals so it's really been shown to really help nurses um, because you know we fall asleep in cars and trains and hammocks we have that whooshing sound uh, in the womb we like falling asleep by the ocean or listening to the wind and so, you know, having uh, some kind of object, you know, like the snoo that can recreate that feeling of being in the womb for a baby when they're out can really make them a lot happier and uh, sort of serve as an off switch uh, for crying. And, you know, Yumi is now feeding 3% of U.S. children. You know, Evelyn was a, a New York Times reporter and left that career in journalism after, you know, her and her parent or her co-founder had done so much uh you know, investigation into nutrition and finding out that, you know, the first two years or three years of a baby's life are so important for their long-term neural development and their metabolic health and their taste preferences. Uh, and that, you know, oftentimes you know, we, we see like formula being regulated like a drug. There's lactation consultants and so much expertise that you get uh, and help with uh, that even at the hospital when you're giving birth about how to, to nurse. But as soon as they're onto solid foods, you're kind of left to yourself. But, you know, kids have a very finite tank to fill. And if you're only filling them with things like applesauce, that's probably not going to be the best for them. They kind of need a more diverse diet, uh, especially things that can be really healthy for them. And oftentimes as cultures grow more wealthy, uh, it can actually increase obesity and diabetes rates because, you know, these foods that used to be treats become, you know, common practice. And, you know, we have access to be able to buy things that we used to thought, think of as being once in a while. And now we can have them all the time. Uh, and that the, you know, there's this big flippening where it used to be the lack of calories that was a leading killer. And now it's 
metabolic health issues because of all of the processed sugar and things that we should really shouldn't be eating. Um, and I think that all relates back to this anxiety that parents really want to just feel like they're doing the best for their kids because it's the kids that pay the consequences if they're not, right? And that's where Nanit comes in, you know, this amazing baby monitor. It can detect the, the temperature and humidity. It can detect sounds and motion. And it can give, you know, parents back that sense of, of surety. And they don't have to be completely obsessed with their baby monitor. They can just get the call outs and the notifications when maybe there is something that they should check on. Uh, and they can invite their fellow parents and peers and family members to, to watch too, which can really make it feel like you have more of a community there. Plus, it can be really helpful for capturing those, those special moments, your, your kid calling out for mama or data the first time. Uh, it can really make you feel like you're not missing something. Uh, and we talked about, you know, maybe what kids do need, and that could definitely be more of those small tribal play groups, you know, finding those pods. Uh, you know, daycare can be really social and important for kids, and it's not necessarily something to be looked down on. But you can also just get some dogs, and that can be a great way for your kids to, you know, have a bit more of a socialization and take on some responsibility themselves. Uh, when we talked about a few things that maybe kids don't need as much of, they don't need so many clothes. They're going to wear what's comfy. They don't need everything for when they're a newborn. They're probably going to need more stuff for when they're three to six months or even when they're, you know, 12 months and beyond when you don't nearly get nearly as many gifts. Uh, and parents read so many baby books and pregnancy books, but often don't read as much about toddler behavior. And that's a great opportunity. Um, and then when we talked about screen time and, you know, what what is actually helping kids right now, it's about understanding the difference between passive and interactive, that it's that passive zombie scrolling or endlessly watching videos that can be negative and isolating and, and not necessarily so good for kids, but, you know, creating, messaging, commenting, things like that can actually be pretty healthy for people because it makes you, you know, it might take a little bit more energy to be put in, but it can really give you some incredible energy when it comes out. And so those are some of the great insights here. And so uh, for a final question, I just want to see, you know, is there one last piece of advice, maybe the thing that you wish you had been told when you were uh, first starting out as a parent or what your research has really told, if there's, you know, one thing that parents uh, or people who are thinking about having kids eventually could walk away from this talk with, what would you tell them? Uh, maybe we could start with you, Evelyn. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that take all the help. You know, I, if I had, you know, a dollar for every parent who, you know, confided in me, they felt guilty using our service because they felt like they had to slave away and cook every meal. Maybe we wouldn't have to fundraise because the parent guilt is so real and so endemic. And it's like, you know, hey, like we made this for you. There's no extra glory or brownie points for sweating, bleeding <laughs> over rearing your, it's hard enough. Why make it additionally hard through an extra layer of guilt? And so whether it's feeling, you know, comfortable and being able to sleep at night because you have the nanit or getting the snoo or because it's like a robotic Harvey Carp instead of a 14 year old, you probably shouldn't trust something with your baby. I think you just have to let yourself like get the help and not feel bad about it. Not like let yourself be wrapped up in this idea that like, suffering is a form of, of love, right? I think there are all these tools, applications, ways to, you know, essentially help rear your child. And the village just takes many different forms that like, let yourself do it. If you want that night nurse, get the night nurse. Like, um, I think there's, there's no shame in, in taking the help and feeling like you're taking some kind of shortcut because parenting seems impossibly hard as it is. And so that would be my advice to the parents in the room. Thank you for that. Yeah. Drop the guilt. Andy, why don't you go next? Uh, and maybe Kennedy can make a guest appearance if she's awake. <laughs> she's been nursing this entire time quietly. Um, yeah. So first, I'd like to just thank both of our parents. Um, so our moms have been listening, sitting next to me uh, with Kennedy here listening to this whole show. So having them here over the last three weeks has been a, a true blessing. Um, but I, I will also say that, yes, um, to piggyback on Evelyn, you know, it, having having support, having help, also living in a city where, to be honest, being able to get anything that we need delivered to our door is uh, honestly a privilege that that we understand not everybody has, and we're we're so grateful for. But um, definitely accepting as much help as you can. I, I would say for any new moms or, or parents out there, but also uh, as I said before all the research on pregnancy and all of that, spending too much time on that is, uh, it, it gets, it becomes pretty redundant over time. So spending a little bit of time preparing for afterbirth, I think would be uh, my piece of advice. Awesome. Sarah. 
I'm going to answer this one from the from the mom perspective and say that there really is such a thing as parents' intuition. And when you have a child, you really can trust yourself and you can feel good about, you should feel good about the decisions that you make because you're always acting in the best interest of your, of your children. So what works for everybody around you might not work for you. And that's okay. Um, it's, it's perfectly okay. It's actually great if, if you come up with your own plan and you feel really good and your children are, are happy and healthy. And so my advice is, you know, trust, trust that, um, trust that, that intuition that you have as, as both a mom and, and a dad. Um, it, it really is a real thing. It exists. Uh, Dr. Harvey Karp? Well, of course, I second everything that Evelyn and Sarah said. I think that believing in yourself is is so critically important and getting help is so critically important. I would add to that a couple of things that I want to just close with. One is that when it comes to sleep is so important for so many aspects of your life. Um, and I'm happy to say that um, people can get a free snoo. I didn't mention that earlier. Um, many dozens and dozens of employers give six months of snoo rental as a, as a benefit. So I guess that would be my advice to people is that if they're interested in getting a free snoo, they should speak to their employer. And then, um, and then the last one is that um, there's a book called The Happiest Toddler on the Block. A lot of people know about the baby one, but there are, there are special techniques that preschool teachers and pediatricians learn in terms of taking care of young children, really from eight months to to 83 years of age, because we all become toddlers if we get upset enough, um, that, that are tech, communication-based techniques that can really help you be so much more effective at reducing tantrums and building emotional resilience. And so um, I, I would, would don't just wing that period. Don't just think you know your child best, and of course you do, but don't think that there's nothing to be added to your understanding, because People who have deep experience in taking care of young children have learned a thing or two through the years and um, and they're available to be shared. I think those are some really incredible lessons. You know, drop the guilt. You're doing your best. There's no shame in looking for assistance. You know, trust your parent intuition and maybe focus a little bit on less on pregnancy, which kind of happens to you and focus a little bit more when your kids are getting a little older and you're really the active one uh, choosing and helping them shape their destiny. And so I just want to thank all of our incredible founders for joining us today on, on stage. I want to thank my wife, Andy, who has been just the most incredible mom through this entire process uh, to both of our moms who are here and listening for being, you know, for raising us and putting their whole life and their their hearts into to raising us and also now being that extended family that we talked about being so important in helping raise our little girl, Kennedy. And to Kennedy, daddy loves you so much. It is just outstanding. I look at that little face and I really, it feels like I've never seen the sunrise before. And so just having her in my life has been the, the best thing that's ever happened to me already. And so I just want to thank everybody, every one of you guys in the audience, all the press clubbers who come back week after week. It means the world to me to have you here. If you want to get the podcast of this show and our last shows, including uh, our, our interview with the Clubhouse founders, a great intimate deep dive into their vision for social audio and their origin stories, plus our previous shows with you know founders and CEOs of companies like Facebook, Slack, Patreon, WordPress, Substack, uh, Craigslist, so many others. Uh, you can check out the podcast. Just search Press Club on wherever you like your podcasts or go to constine.club slash listen and you can check out all the past shows and we'll have this one available soon so we'd love to have you as a subscriber uh, really would mean a lot, a lot to us because we want this show to live on beyond the ephemeral moment that's here and if you have other friends who maybe wanted to hear the show and missed it would love if you'd share it with them it would mean the world to me uh, I just work my hardest to make sure that this is worth your ears to make it worth your time because I know that everyone is so busy out there but it's amazing that you know podcasts clubhouse things like that can really give us a way to still feel intellectually connected while we're doing work around the house while we're taking care of our babies and so I just want to thank everyone out there for giving us this time. And I hope you go out there and drop the guilt and know that you're doing your best. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you again for me, Josh Constein. Uh, I'm a VC at a fund called Signal Fire. We're always looking for incredible new software products as well as hardware products uh, in the, the baby tech space and the creator space and telemedicine. And so if you're building something special in this space, I would love to hear about it. Feel free to pitch me on Twitter or get a warm intro from somebody. Uh, but otherwise, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to Press Club. We'll be back next Thursday, 6 p.m. Pacific, and we would love to have you here. My pleasure to be your host this evening 
evening. I am Josh Constein. Thanks again to our wonderful guests and to my lovely wife. And thanks again, Kennedy, for be having your first time on air. It's been a pleasure. Farewell, friends. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank you. <laughs> See you guys next time. Farewell. <laughs>